A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to travel extensively through the Amazon basin. I visited remote villages and saw things that most people never see except on the pages of National Geographic. Yet there are so many people in the world that will never have that opportunity, nor are they willing to take that risk. Most people would rather view a wild animal in a cage instead of seeing that same animal in the natural world, because it's much safer that way. This is in fact what most people do when they visit the zoo. You get to see fierce animals up close and not be in danger. And perhaps a day at the zoo also makes people feel better about the preservation of endangered species. But is that really what is going on? Is our collection of wild animals about conservation or entertainment? Listen to this episode to find out. Welcome to the Adventures in Sustainable Living podcast. Your host has lived an off-grid, sustainable lifestyle for over 20 years. His homestead is run on solar energy. He has an earth shelter greenhouse and produces much of his own food. And all of this takes place in the middle of the forest in Colorado. Now, let's join Patrick, the man that not only teaches the skills of sustainable living, but lives that life every day. Welcome back, everyone, to the Adventures in Sustainable Living podcast. This is your host, Patrick, and this is episode number 43, which is called Noah's Ark All Over Again. If you have been listening to my podcast, then you know I have spoken several times about the worldwide loss of habitat and the loss of biodiversity that is so concerning. And not only that, but our efforts to repair the damage is so often overshadowed by our unrelenting destruction. More often than not, we are using a band-aid in a weak attempt to repair an enormous gaping wound. And that is what we are doing by capturing animals and keeping them in captivity. Having been a veterinarian for over 25 years now, my fascination with animals really started at a very young age. One of my favorite things to do when I was a kid was to go to the zoo. The animals were incredibly fascinating and, and like so many other people, I also thought that zoos lovingly took care of their animals and to some degree had an influence on the care of those animals in their natural habitat. But what most people do not realize is all the things that go on in the background. Now I know very well that this is a highly controversial topic that many people are passionate about, but I also want to point out both sides of the issue and of course to look at it from the perspective of sustainability and allow my listeners to make a decision for themselves. There are pros and cons to keeping animals in captivity. There are many zoos and aquariums that are doing some fantastic work and the people that work in these facilities are often enormously passionate and dedicated to what they do. But there is also a downside to having zoos and aquariums that so many people are just not aware of. Throughout history, men have collected and held large, fierce animals in captivity as simply a display of their prestige and power. And it all started with 
the so-called royal menageries. And these were private collections of world rulers that, that used their authority and power to collect exotic animals for their own pleasure. And the earliest evidence of this actually dates back to 3,500 years BC in Egypt. There are also numerous examples of wealthy or famous people from newspaper tycoons to drug lords that collected wild, fierce, and exotic animals. And you know, I do have to point out the fact that I find this somewhat entertaining when the one animal in the world that kills more people than anything else is actually the mosquito. Anyway, it was these private collections that eventually led to the modern zoo. Early zoos, you know, kept animals behind sort of archaic metal bars, but there was an exotic animal importer called Carl Hagenbeck changed all of that. You know, he opened his animal park in 1907 in which he had designed cages that really didn't look like cages at all. He used moats and cleverly arranged rock walls to pin animals in such a way as to give the impression that they were actually in nature and not in captivity. His, his early work was incredibly influential on modern zoo design. Eventually, zoos expanded their collections to many species other than the large dangerous animals. They expanded to include birds and reptiles and even insects. They truly morphed into what would turn out to be an educational day out for the family. But late in the 20th century, Zoological parks began to make serious efforts toward rebranding themselves as organizations that make significant contributions to conservation. And this certainly was the primary image that I maintained for most of my life. The idea that was promoted is that zoo animals served as a backup population for wild animals that are threatened in their normal habitat. And it is, in fact, this focus on conservation that is key if institutions want to be accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, known as the AZA. Case in point, there are several zoos that are famous for their conservation efforts. And for example, four zoos and aquariums in the New York City area are managed by the Wildlife Conservation Society, which is involved with wildlife conservation projects worldwide. But the unfortunate part is that this is not the norm and the everyday reality is quite a different story. So allow me to just give you a few examples. One of the things that zoos promote is their contribution to conservation efforts. The Association of Zoos and Aquariums, the AZA, reported spending an average of $231 million annually on conservation projects. However, zoos and aquariums produced an average of $16 billion added to the economy. So if you do the math, that works out to be about 1% of the funds generated actually goes toward conservation efforts. Zoos also like to promote the idea that one of their purposes is to teach people about animals and the biodiversity crisis. 
They like to say that they educate people about animals and consequently people develop a conservation ethic. Yet, there are more than 700 million visitors to zoos and aquariums each year and biodiversity is still in decline. Furthermore, in 2008 and in 2011, two separate studies were conducted which involved the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo, the Bronx Zoo, Prospect Park, and Brookfield Zoo outside of Chicago. And the purpose of these studies were to survey visitors and collect information about their reasons for visiting the zoo. Of the thousands of comments collected, only about 12% said their purpose was to learn about animals. They also found that only 27% of the people actually read the signs at the zoo exhibits. And furthermore, researchers wrote, and I quote, In all the statements collected, no one volunteered information that would lead us to believe they actually had an intention to advocate for the protection of the animal or an intention to change their own behavior. In other words, people do not go to zoos to learn about biodiversity crisis. They do not go to zoos to learn about how they can help. People visit zoos for the same reason they went to zoos in the 19th century. They simply want to be entertained. And yet the AZA says, zoos and aquariums are some of the best places for you and your family to get connected with nature and become engaged in conservation action. And one truly unfortunate part about the whole zoo world and the zoo environment is that there is a oftentimes killing of surplus animals. And this is something that is kept very quiet and is rarely spoken about, but it does happen. So to be more specific, according to the species survival plan programs, a surplus animal is one that has made its genetic contribution to a managed population and is not essential for further scientific studies or to maintain social groups, stability, or traditions. So what this means is that animals that do not fit into the zoo's breeding program are disposed of in one way or another. The underlying fact is that zoos do not take care of animals for their entire life. Surplus animals are sold, traded, and even euthanized. In 2014, the director of the European AZA stated that between 3,000 and 5,000 surplus animals were euthanized. So it is truly sad to say that Zoos frequently promote the conservation of endangered species through their mission statements when the reality is that animal welfare often takes a back seat when the monetary value of a particular animal is no longer worth the time and energy the zoo is investing in them. And all of this does not even begin to touch on the topic of private zoos and rescues and other animal collections and organizations that are not even accredited by the AZA. And as far as I could find, there are about 420 or so zoos and aquariums in the United States, and less than 10% of those are accredited. 
and many of these do not even meet the basic health standards for animal care. And for some people, visiting private zoos is the only way they will fulfill their lifelong dream of cuddling a tiger cub. And many facilities even offer high-priced photo opportunities with various species and of course the big cats being the primary targets. Other places offer petting opportunities to the public and what this means is that the animal has to be restrained in some way in order for anyone to get close enough to touch it in the first place. And this of course, in my opinion, is completely unethical. And then there are the questionable breeding practices. You know, the object of course is to produce some sort of novelty that will attract the crowds, you know, while they are producing some sort of a genetic offspring that most likely would never occur in the natural world. And you know, now you may think at this point that I am completely against any sort of zoo or aquarium, but the opposite is actually true. I did say that at the beginning of this episode, I would present both sides of the issue. And there are in fact, some very good examples of how endangered species have been saved from extinction due to the fantastic conservation work of zoos and other organizations. For example, the Arabian Oryx, which is an antelope that was native to the Arabian Peninsula. And this animal actually went extinct in the wild in the 1970s. And reintroduction into the wild was made possible by using zoo populations. The California condor was no doubt saved from extinction thanks to the work of five different zoos. The black-footed ferret in the United States is another good example. And in fact, I worked with one of the researchers on this project who was a biologist and veterinarian at the Wyoming State Veterinary Lab. The golden lion tamarind, which is native to Brazil, was on the brink of extinction due to logging, mining, and poaching and today, about one-third of the wild population of these species actually came from populations or animals that were raised in captivity. The Bellinger River Turtle. This unique species is found along the Bellinger River in Australia. And in 2015, almost 90% of these species was wiped out due to disease. And an emergency response from the Taronga Zoo, Sydney, rescued 16 healthy turtles and began a captive breeding program. The Regent Honey Eater. This interesting Australian species relies on nectar of a particular species of eucalyptus tree, and due to deforestation, this species has lost an important food source. But Thanks to active breeding programs in Australian zoos and tree planting initiatives, the future of this species looks much more secure. So, applause to the Australians again. The Panamanian Golden Frog. Now, this frog is actually incredibly poisonous, but due to a fungal disease, it was almost wiped out. It was thought to be extinct in 2007. However, a population was successfully located and taken into captivity 
and due to the collaborative effort of several zoos, this species was saved from extinction. And also, according to the AZA website, there are 241 accredited facilities in 13 countries. They have about 800,000 animals representing some 6,000 different species that are in their care, with 1,000 of them being from the list of endangered or threatened species. And furthermore, their site lists 217 reintroduction programs with 50 of those reintroduction programs involving species that are either threatened or endangered. So as I said, there is a tremendous amount of really good work going on, but I also want to just want to take a minute to briefly summarize both sides of this story and to put things into perspective. So some of the advantages of zoos is that they can be very important from the perspective of research. They can be very important from the protection of threatened and endangered species, and I've given obvious examples above. Zoos also provide important economic contribution to their host communities. And the average person involved in zoo work is enormously devoted to the animals in their care, so the zookeepers are by far and away the good guys. And zoos can also raise awareness of environmental issues. So the bottom line is that there's a tremendous amount of good work being performed by a lot of truly dedicated and passionate people. The disadvantages of having zoos. Animals are, of course, deprived of their natural environments and they often have limited space and the largest percentage of animals in zoos actually spend their entire life in captivity and they are never returned to the wild. Most zoos, unfortunately, exist only to maximize their profit and 90% of these facilities are not accredited by the AZA and enforcement of regulations is often difficult. And additionally, captive animals often exhibit psychological problems and it is somewhat common unfortunately to use medications to manage those behavioral problems and opponents to zoos of course say that these facilities are cruel at best so all this being said let's just step back and take a look at the big picture there is no doubt there is a lot of fantastic work being done and I've given several examples of species that would have been lost forever had some of this work not taken place. But in the big picture, experts say that we are losing species at a rate of 1,000 to 10,000 times faster than the natural background extinction rate. And at a minimum, at least 10,000 species go extinct every year. Only about 1% of the economic gain that's produced by zoos and aquariums actually goes toward conservation efforts. The AZA put a figure on it of $231 million. So to put that into perspective, if 190,000 people in the United States donated their yearly Starbucks expenditures, that is all it would take 
to fund this amount of yearly conservation expenses. So such a statistic makes me question what zoos are for if they are not dedicated to saving the animals. What is their purpose if they focus billions of dollars on business and entertainment and only millions on conservation? And furthermore, did you know that there are now twice as many tigers in captivity in the United States as there are existing in the wild? The educational efforts of the zoos are not encouraging people to engage in conservation efforts and the most common reason people go to zoos is for entertainment. And all the while in the background, surplus animals are euthanized, sold, and traded. And one other thing that the common person is clearly not aware of is the specter of zoonotic diseases due to our interaction with exotic animals. Humans have always been plagued by epidemics, primarily caused by infectious diseases that originated in animals and particularly in wildlife. And according to the Center for Disease Control website, six out of 10 of every known infectious diseases can be spread from animals. And three out of four new or emerging diseases in people actually come from animals. These so-called disease spillover events have even intensified in recent decades, largely driven by human population growth, attempts to alleviate poverty, which has introduced intensified farming, and of course the unsustainable exploitation of natural resources. Even certain cultural dietary habits and traditional medicine that drives the trade of wild animals contributes to infectious disease emergence. And all of this coupled with our increasingly globalized planet results in an efficient and sustainable transmission between humans that quickly spreads. And this of course has been well demonstrated with uh, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And in 2019, an article published in the Emerging Infectious Disease Journal, researchers estimated that 75% of emerging infectious diseases are zoonotic, meaning the disease can be spread from animals to humans. So, you know, you gotta step back and wonder why the heck we are messing with nature, and I am not sure what else it's going to take to get people's attention. So the bottom line is that the goal, or at least the apparent goal, of many captive breeding programs at zoos is to reintroduce animals into the wild. And I, of course, have given several good examples of that. And while such efforts do help to sustain endangered and threatened species, the release of a few animals into the wild truly does very little to address the real problem, which is habitat loss. People continue to farm, build houses, exploit resources, purchase consumer goods at record rates, plow under and burn natural habitat areas, dump garbage into the ocean, 
while we all swim in a sea of microplastics. Now, you really truly must know that I actually support zoos and aquariums. And I personally know a veterinary surgeon that does work at one of the local zoos. And I have been to our local aquarium in downtown Denver on a number of occasions and have even gone scuba diving in the shark tank, which is quite a fascinating experience. But looking at zoos and aquariums from the perspective of the information I have presented here makes me wonder if this is just Noah's Ark all over again, or are we actually accomplishing something? In the end, the whole point of this episode is to get you thinking about zoos and aquariums from a sustainability perspective. And these types of organizations, they do some fantastic work, but I think they are losing their focus. For example, you do not need to be a person with experience in the veterinary industry to successfully manage a veterinary hospital. It's enormously helpful, but it's not necessary because in many respects, it's simply managing a business. Similarly, you do not need someone with a background in an animal-related or conservation field in order to manage the business of a zoo or aquarium. It's enormously helpful, but not necessary. So therein lies the rub. More and more people hired to manage these facilities do not have a biology, conservation, ecology, or any other related background. Consequently, the facility gets managed simply as a business instead of an organization that is in the business of conservation. This is just another example of how we are losing our focus on the primary issue. But you know, our culture is really good at that. You know, we focus on consuming and acquiring more personal possessions and endlessly entertaining ourselves instead of figuring out how to live a sustainable lifestyle that is more environmentally friendly. So as an individual, you need to make a choice. Either support and patronize your local zoo or aquarium or never go there in the first place. And if you patronize such a facility, then go there from the perspective of learning about the species involved and how you can help instead of simply visiting the facility for entertainment. So in closing, I simply want to give you something to think about. First of all, you know, it's no doubt that we can all agree that we now live in an ever-changing world. There are so many things going on in the world right now that it's kind of hard to say what things are going to be like even a month from now. And it's kind of unsettling in a lot of ways. So that said, I found this really interesting article the other day sponsored by the Smithsonian Institute that was titled Introduction to Human Evolution. And according to this article, it has taken humans six million years to evolve into what we are today. The nuclear accident at Chernobyl took place in 1986. And since that time, a lot of research has been conducted in what is called the Chernobyl Exclusion Area, 
And this is basically an area of land that is 1,600 square miles where no one is allowed to go. So in less than 30 years, some of the local animals have mutated and adapted to the high levels of radiation and continue to thrive. Now, they cannot be hunted or harvested and used as a food source, of course, because they're highly radioactive. So human evolution took six million years. Animal evolution and adaptation takes less than 30 years. If we do not do a complete turnaround and make efforts to slow down and or reverse the rapid changes we are now seeing in our world, who do you think will evolve fast enough to survive? The animals or the humans? This is your host, Patrick, signing off until next week. Always remember to live sustainably because this is how we build a better future.